Hello, church family. Pastor Dan here. Well, you probably realize that I'm not here today. I've been on vacation this week, and Lori and I went away for the weekend. But we'll miss you, and we'll be glad to be back this coming week in the office, and of course, with you next Sunday. But today, my friend, Pastor Pilgrim Benham, is here to preach for us. Uh, Pilgrim is a good friend of mine. I've known him for a few years, and he's also one of my partners in the Gospel Forum that many of you already know, a good ministry there with, with blogs and podcasts. Uh, Pilgrim is the uh, pastor, one of the elders at King's Cross Church, formerly Shoreline Calvary Chapel. You will uh, be blessed today as you hear Pilgrim uh, preach the Word of God. He's a faithful expositor. But also, you also might want to check out a new book that Pilgrim wrote called Hail the King. Uh, Pilgrim does have a few copies available today if you are interested, and uh, you could uh, purchase those from him. I highly recommend it. Let's welcome Pilgrim Benham. Well, good morning. Thank you so much for having me this morning. It is an honor and a privilege. On behalf of my wife, Jen, who is with me uh, this morning, and our church, King's Cross, we just want to say for a moment how much we love and appreciate two things. First, we love and appreciate you as a fellowship, as a church. Uh, we are thankful for your partnership in the gospel, and it's, it's really wonderful to know that there's another solid fellowship in our community that is teaching God's word verse by verse, that is gospel-centered, and it's just an honor to know that uh, we have the west side and the east side of Bradenton covered with the gospel. And secondly, not only do we thank you and appreciate you, uh, we also uh, love and appreciate your pastor. Uh, pastor Dan just mentioned that he and I and some other men founded the Gospel Forum, and he has become a trusted and a dear friend, and, uh, as well as Lori to my wife and I. And it's clear that Pastor Dan loves you so much, and it's also clear today uh, that that care and that love is reciprocated to he and his family. So thank you again for your attentiveness this morning in your beloved pastor's absence. And not only, just one thing about me, not only do Dan and I love God's Word, we also share an affection for Star Wars. And so <laughs> I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you here this morning. But let's open our Bibles, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We've had the scripture read to us this morning, but I will read verses 12, 13, and 14 once again, and then we'll pray and we will dig into the exposition of this text. Look with me at Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the living God. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you this morning for new morning mercies. We know that these are available only and solely in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
This morning, Lord, we ask that you would bless the preaching and the listening of your word, that we would not be hearers only, but doers. We ask this by the strength of your Holy Spirit, and we pray this for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen. Are you aware that after the Bible and William Shakespeare, that the most top-selling or best-selling novelist of all time is actually Agatha Christie? Agatha Christie may have been familiar to you from the 66 different detective novels that she wrote, including the now-famous detective Poirot. Maybe you've heard of Murder on the Orient Express or you've heard of Death on the Nile. I think both of these have uh, attempted Hollywood movies. But what you may not have known is that in 1926, Agatha Christie herself was the subject of her own mystery. She actually went missing for 10 days straight. And on the 11th day after she disappeared, she was apparently found 200 miles away from where her car had been located. When her husband came to identify her, she had, over the course of those 10, 11 days, no memory whatsoever of what had happened to her. She didn't know how she had gotten where she had gotten, and she didn't even know who her husband was or even her own identity. And maybe for a few days that was a good thing for her husband, but (laughs) isn't it ironic that a woman known for writing these incredible stories where the reader is engrossed in solving mysteries, she was now herself the subject of her own riddle. She had become as lost in her own life as the readers of her novels often were. Now, I tell you that story because as we open the book of Colossians chapter 1, there was a sort of amnesia that the believers in the city of Colossae were experiencing, but it wasn't a physical amnesia, but a spiritual memory loss. Though they were in Christ, their faith had seemingly become threatened. Why? Because they had forgotten who they were and potentially whose they were. Of all the churches that Paul wrote to, and he wrote many, the city of Colossae may have been the smallest or the most insignificant. They had been decimated by an earthquake in the year 60 AD. It used to be a bustling and important town, and yet after that earthquake, it never truly recovered. After this church was planted by most likely Epaphras, some problems began to bubble up, which happens when you plant churches. False teaching had snuck into the scene. The new and the young Christians who had placed their faith in Christ alone were now being challenged that Christ wasn't enough. You need another source of spiritual power. You're missing out on next level Christianity. Some men had invaded the church and began to argue that we need to remove Jesus from, of course, his rightful place of preeminence and glory, and we need to now measure Jesus' power as equal to just any other spirit power. And so even though Colossae was an insignificant city, we know the message that Paul writes to the church in Colossae was perhaps the most significant of all messages that we hear, because this letter declares to us the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of of Jesus Christ and the power of what our identity as followers of Christ truly is. Paul, in the opening chapter here, 
prayed several things for the Colossian church to know as believers. And you could say Paul was trying to remind them of who they were and be reminded of their story. So we're going to zoom in from this text and look at verses 12, 13, and 14. And if you're taking note today, I hope you are, there's three things that I want us to look at in these verses. But we're going to see, as Paul reminds the church, praying that they would know who they are, he reminds them and us thousands of years later, first of all, in verse 12, that number one, we are qualified to receive an inheritance. We are qualified. Number two, we learn that we are delivered from one kingdom to another. And finally, we learn that we are redeemed for God's glory, verse 14. But to set that up, notice where Paul begins in verse 3. He begins by giving thanks to the Father for the Colossian believers. Notice with me in verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, I often will leave a note to someone and jot Philippians 1.3 as a reference verse, just letting them know, whenever I think of you, I pray for you. Hopefully, we can say that about everyone, but maybe there's someone you don't thank the Lord for when you pray for them. But Paul, as he considers the Colossian church, thanks God, and notice what he's thankful for. He's thankful for the three things that remain for every Christian. He's thankful for faith, hope, and love. And what's the greatest of these, church? Okay, good job, Pastor Dan. They know their stuff. (laughs) Paul says, I always thank God for you when I pray for you. And in verse 6, he says that God's gospel has come to them. It It has borne fruit in them from the very first day they heard and the very first day they understood the grace of God. Do you remember that day in your life? You first heard and understood the grace of God, that he has plucked out of the fire a brand like you and me, sinners that were not worthy, but he saved us by his grace. So he knew who they had learned it from, Epaphras, and he was told to Paul, or Paul was told by Epaphras how much fruit the church was bearing. But then we get to verse 9, and we get Paul's wonderful prayer. I love Paul's prayers in the scripture. They're like run-on sentences, so it's always good when you hear someone praying Paul's prayers. And so, verse 9, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And here's what he prayed. We're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Note with me here, Paul's consistent prayer was for them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, and with all wisdom and understanding. Why? So that they could live a life that was pleasing to God. A life that bears fruit. A life that grows more and more with the knowledge of God. Paul was praying that the more they understood good theology, good doctrine, good understanding of the person and work of the Trinity, the more they would understand who they were and would be equipped with all that we need, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1, all that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. Paul's prayer and his writing seem to flow from the theological to the practical and not the other way around. 
In other words, Paul doesn't say, you need to line up your Christian life and do good and then learn theology. No, his argument was, you need to grasp God, get a hold of God, know God, and from this root will bear fruit in obedience and repentance. We know that we're not here gathered just to get the knowledge, though. It's not to live in our minds. This isn't a theological class or an intellectual argument where by the end of the service today, come back and regurgitate the points that were made so you get an A or a check mark on your paper. That's not what we're doing here. No, we want the knowledge of God to bear fruit in true obedience to the Lord. So Paul prays that. He prays that they as a church would be strengthened with all power. I like what one person pointed out. They said, quote, the Colossian Christians were coming to Christ from a secret wisdom tradition steeped in demonology and spirit worship. And their constant temptation was to revert back to those practices and to treat Christ as if he was just another spirit among many, end quote. So that's why Paul goes on to speak in verses 15 and onward about the power and the preeminence of Christ. I mean, notice with me in verse 15 that he says, he is, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, those are the things that we see, invisible, those that we do not see, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. In other words, the things that the Colossian false teachers would have placed a high emphasis and priority in. No, he says in the rest of that verse, all things were created through him and for him. Not only were you not an accident this morning, you were not only created through Christ, but you were created for him. You exist for the glory of God. Verse 17, he goes on and says, and he, this is Christ, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. You could say he is the senior pastor. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Who is preeminent in Paul's eyes? Not Jesus among many gods. No, Jesus alone is supreme. In fact, the word preeminent in the Greek means first place. It's a position of distinction above all the rest. Some synonyms on the screen. You could say that preeminent means the supreme one, the one who is incomparable, surpassing, towering, transcendent, ultimate, unmatchable, unsurpassable. There is no thing, there is no one who compares with Jesus. He is above all things. And thus in chapter 3, as Paul in his own letter gets more practical, he says, so because he's seated in in heaven above all things, we are to fix our minds on things that are above. Now, I told you verses 12 through 14 is where we're going to spend our time because as Paul is thanking the Father, he describes in these verses three things that he sees the Father doing. And thankfully, this is not only for the church in Colossae. This is not only for the Colossian believer. This is for the Northwest Bradenton Baptist believer, the King's Cross Church believer as well. So note with me that first, number one, Paul thanks God the Father for making the believers qualified. Look with me at verse 12. 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You might want to circle that word qualify. The word means to make fit or to render competent. The idea is we were not qualified. We were not fit. We certainly were not competent to share in the inheritance, but now the Father has qualified us. In the last few years, the federal government has been giving out stimulus money. And now, of course, we've seen the effect of that. We have uh, inflation growing. But that, that stimulus money didn't go to just anyone and everyone. You didn't just walk into an office and I'll take my check, please. Oh, I'll take a couple checks while I'm here. No, you had to make under a certain income each year. And you had to file taxes the previous year. And you had to have, I think, your direct deposit information readily available in the IRS system to qualify for this stimulus, to stimulate the economy. You had to be qualified, in other words, to receive this. But I'm so thankful that Paul says, I'm giving thanks that the Father is the one who qualifies us. In other words, thanks be to God, it's not that we have to make a certain income bracket to be qualified. Thanks be to God that it's not our good works that qualify us. He doesn't say, thank, uh, give me thanks to the Father because your works, your good deeds have qualified you. No. We understand that we were not born as natural heirs anticipating an inheritance one day. No, we were the outsiders. But the Father has adopted us into His glorious family. And now because of that, because of His initiative in our salvation, now you and I as believers are qualified to share this inheritance we never would have been competent to attain beforehand. Isn't that wonderful news? That should never get old for us. The realization that there is nothing that you and I can do to be qualified for the inheritance. So it doesn't matter who your parents are today. It doesn't matter on which side of town you grew up on. By the way, I did grow up in West Bradenton, so... It doesn't matter what model car you drove up in today. It doesn't matter what brand names are stitched on your clothing. The world gives things to these, your net worth, or even in the church, how law-abiding, how spiritual you may come across. No, the only way we're qualified for this inheritance is for the Father to grant it to us. See, Romans eight seventeen says that we are joint heirs. We are co-heirs with Christ, the Son. And Paul says that you and I have been given the qualification to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And this is something that we work not for, but it's something that we work from. Because it's just been freely bestowed on us based on our family heritage. We've been adopted into a glorious family full of spiritual riches. It would be great enough to know that you had a long-lost uncle that left you everything in the will. But Paul says, no, true riches are found in the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, we need not fear that this is going to be in jeopardy. Peter told the church that he wrote to, the exiles, in 1 Peter 1, 3-4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to, again, not our works, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. Those are three wonderful truths. An incorruptible, undefiled, and inheritance that doesn't fade away. He says it's reserved in heaven for you. 
who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I think you and I can agree many Christians do not realize the privilege that is ours in Christ because of our inheritance as a joint heir. You and I have been adopted into this family. We've been qualified for an inheritance we could never earn or deserve. Glory be to God. Now let's look at the second thing that Paul gives thanks for in verse 13. He says, he, and we'll get to the he in a moment, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So in keeping with what Paul had just said, he says in verse 12, I give thanks to the father. Here's what the father has done. First, he's qualified you for this inheritance. Secondly, though, he has delivered us from one domain and transferred us to a kingdom. And in this case, it's the kingdom of his beloved son. So in this note, I want to point out that you and I have been delivered. Other translations for that word delivered could be rescued. Maybe you have a different translation than what I'm reading in the ESV. Some translations say rescue. Our salvation, you could say, is a rescue operation. Uh, Another way to translate that phrase domain of darkness is power of darkness. And one commentator said, quote, these words, power of darkness, domain of darkness, refer to the sinister forces that were marshaled against him for decisive combat in the spiritual realm, end quote. You see, before we were delivered, we weren't just people who didn't know better. Oh, well, we were just non-religious folk. No, that's not the idea. The idea is that before we were delivered, we were by nature, according to the scripture, Ephesians 2, children of wrath. We were dwelling in darkness. We were spiritually dead and spiritually blind. You know your testimony, we, we stumbled around in the pitch blackness of our own spiritual ignorance, and we were held under the power and the domain of darkness, which is the power and domain of Satan. Jesus himself in John three nineteen said, this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Remember what Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, he said, as he begins a bit of a rebuke to this church in the region of Galatia. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, why? To deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, the means, the means of deliverance The means of the rescue was the propitiation, the sacrifice of Christ at Calvary. Jesus rescued us. He transferred us from the the domain of darkness, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. William Barclay explains that this word transfer here, or convey, if you have a different translation, it's a word that was used in the ancient world when one empire would conquer another empire And because they conquered them, by default, all of those that were conquered, all of the domains that they conquered were now transferred into the conqueror's land. We see this in a very small way in Ukraine right now. We've seen in the last few years Russia invading and seeking to occupy and just declare Ukraine's land is Russian land. But in the ancient world, if Persia, for example, invaded and conquered Bradenton, 
Well, then you and your household and your property, everything that you owned, everything that you were, was now transferred to the Persian Empire. You are now subjects of Persia, you and everything that you owned. This is the analogy. This is the picture that Paul is painting here. He's telling us that the Father has delivered us from one domain, one kingdom, and has transferred us to another. When we think about the kingdom of God, and that's a little bit of what I wrote in the book, Hail the King, we understand in the scripture, there's, we hear of many kingdoms in the world, but there's really only two. There's two kingdoms. Of course, the true kingdom we call the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the rule, the reign, the realm of Christ, our king. We know that Jesus is the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords, the creator of all things in heaven and on earth. He's distinct from creation, has complete authority and dominion over all. We know that this king, Jesus, is eternal, but yet he entered into humanity incarnate as a baby. As Jesus began his teaching ministry, he didn't just heal, which was a demonstration of the power of his kingdom, but he also taught about his kingdom. We know that his forerunner, John the Baptist, said that the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent. Jesus reversed the demonic influences when he healed, showing his power, demonstrating his kingdom. As he revealed his kingdom to his disciples and then spoke of his kingdom to Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And we know that he died on the cross but rose again triumphantly, crowned as the only true king, putting the final enemy, death, under his feet. And so how do we become a citizen of this kingdom? Well, again, it's not natural birth, but it's spiritual birth. We become a citizen of heaven by repenting of our sins, by trusting Christ, being born again from above, being made right with the king. In our natural state, we are an enemy of the king. And Psalm 2 warns us to bow, to kiss the son, to receive the true king. And so now as a new citizen of heaven, we have all of the benefits, all of the blessings of being a citizen In this kingdom, we get to be a part of a new people that advance his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So there's there's the true kingdom, but that means you said there's a second kingdom. Yes, there is a second kingdom, a diabolical kingdom, a kingdom that is corrupt and stands in opposition to the kingdom of Christ. And it'll spring up with different names. In the Old Testament, you might hear Babylon or Babel, you might hear about Rome in the New Testament, the kingdom of Satan, or We could just say the kingdom of self. No matter what, this is the anti-kingdom. This is the kingdom that resists God's kingdom, resists and defies and wars against the true king of heaven. And the idea behind this kingdom is you'll find life as you pursue vanity, as you build yourself up, pursue what you want, exalt yourself to the throne. Go out and live, laugh, and love. And I know some people have that sign up in their home. I'm not knocking that, but the idea becomes it's all about your comfort. It's all about your pleasure. It's all about you. Oh, engage your flesh, engage the world system, but underneath it all, it's motivated, it's empowered by the evil one. We know the Garden of Eden, the battle that was seemingly won by this diabolical kingdom, suffered this great defeat in the battle of Mount Calvary. And so because of the fall, you and I, in our natural state, 
are automatically, we are by default, by nature, a citizen of the second kingdom, a citizen of this corrupt anti-kingdom. We, in our natural state, are hostile enemies of the Father. And at Calvary, as Jesus publicly disarmed all the satanic, demonic power, stripping them of their strength, as Paul would go on to say in the book of Colossians, humiliating them, conquering them forever. Notice what he says just a chapter later in chapter 2, verse 15. Paul says that, that he, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So, this is bad news, isn't it? By nature, in our, our natural state, I thought mom told me I was a good boy. Well, no, in our natural state, we're enemies of God. But because of Christ's death and resurrection, we have now been rescued. We have now been transferred into his kingdom. We who were once his enemies are now like Mephibosheth, the enemy of David, the descendant of Saul, who in his own strength, you could say, well, he didn't do anything that bad. Well, the one that represented him, Saul, was an enemy of the king. And, And this King David, a man after God's own heart, pursues Mephibosheth and as an act of kindness and grace, picks up this crippled man and carries him to the king's table. That's a picture of what has happened to you and I. We've been delivered from enmity with God, Paul would tell the church in Ephesus, to now being recipients of his grace. Charles Spurgeon said this about Satan. He said, quote, Beloved, we are still are tempted by Satan, but we are not under his power. We have to fight with him, but we are not his slaves. He is not our king. He has no rights over us. We do not obey him. We will not listen to his temptations, end quote. I mean, what a picture Paul uses. We've been transferred, conquered. We've been won over by Christ. Everything we are, everything we have is now under the lordship of King Jesus. For those of us who have repented today and trusted Christ, listen, the Father has delivered you and I from the power of darkness. So not only have we been qualified for something we could never, ever be qualified for, not only have we been delivered from a power we never could overcome, but thirdly, it gets better. Thirdly, we are redeemed. Notice verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This now highlights the transaction, if you would, the work of Christ at Calvary. In fact, these are financial words. Redemption. We know redemption means to buy back. As a kid, I was storing up. My grandfather said, store up Coke bottles, Coke cans. We're going to redeem those. We're going to trade them in. We went to the, after months and years, finally got all these cans and we trade them in, and I think we got $8, <laughs> years of work. We know this word, redeem, to buy back, to trade in, uh, whereas forgiveness, it's also a financial word, but it means to settle a debt. So if you had a slave, and, and this slave wanted to secure his freedom, then you or he could pay the price of redemption, the price of ransom. And we know what Jesus said in Matthew 20, don't we? He said in verse 28, quote, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, end quote. You and I can't buy ourselves out of slavery. No, a price has to be paid by someone willing and able to free us from slavery to sin. And Romans 3.24 tells us that that redemption is in Christ Jesus. 
You see, redemption points us to the sufficiency of Christ because it is through faith in his blood that our sins are made right. And so you and I, we're dependent upon the price being paid for redemption at the cross. Does anyone want to pay for your own way to heaven? Pay for that redemption? No. It'd be impossible. So, so we're redeemed. And the major aspect of this redemption that Paul is pointing out is that we have our sins forgiven. If we were not redeemed, you and I this morning would still be dead in our sins. You and I would still be guilty before a holy God. You and I would not be able to satisfy the wrath of a just God through the things that our community would try to hold up and say, well, maybe this would qualify me. Maybe this would justify me. The world around us might say, well, listen, I don't know. I, I think God could grade on a curve and look at my diet. I have a pretty fancy diet. Hey, I floss. Hey, I give a lot to the humane society. I care for the environment. I'm not a bad person. The world could throw out their arguments and we could do every good work conceived under heaven and yet we will still face an eternity in hell. Jesus' rescue mission was not just to rescue us from Satan. It was to rescue us from our sin. You see, no spiritual power under heaven will qualify us to become God's children. And that's good news. No spiritual power under heaven can keep us in its hostile grip if Christ has set us free. And that is glorious good news. No spiritual power can threaten to unravel or undo our salvation if Christ has paid the price and forgiven us. No, we've been qualified, delivered, and redeemed. You see, many of us may be walking with Christ for many years. And we might think, well, pastor, this is, this is a little elementary. You're, you're supposed to maybe go a little deeper when you bring the word to, uh, you know, guest speak somewhere. You, you need to go beyond the gospel. And I would say, no, no, no. We never graduate from the gospel. We never move on from the gospel. We only move deeper into it. There's nothing more important than the gospel to help us grow and mature in our faith. And many of us, begin to go through the motions. We sang standing on the promises. And I grew up, one pastor said, make sure we're not just standing on the premises, but we're standing on the promises. We can go through the motions and like Agatha Christie, like the church in Colossae, forget. Wait a minute, this is who I am. And this is whose I am. So in light of these three glorious identity markers, I think there's three ways that we can respond this morning. How do we respond to the truth of God's word? Or as your pastor says, what will you do? with what you've been taught. First, because you are qualified, rest. Rest. Beloved, you need to rest in the truth this morning that the work has been finished. Jesus did not cry out from the cross, it has started. (laughs) Meaning, I'll begin the work of salvation, but then you need to do your job to add to my work of atonement. No, the work has been completed. The last words that Jesus speaks on the cross are written over every believer. They're written over every list of sins you can produce against yourself and that one person. They're written over every charge that Satan would bring against us. Christ victoriously proclaims, it is finished. Spurgeon, again, don't have the quote on the screen. Listen to these words. He says, quote, there's nothing more for God to do. It is finished. There's nothing more for you to do. It is finished. Christ need not bleed 
you need not weep. It is finished. God the Holy Spirit need not delay because of your unworthiness. And you need not delay because of your helplessness. It is finished. He says, every stumbling block is rolled out of the road. Every gate is opened. The bars of brass are broken. The gates of iron are burst asunder. It is finished, end quote. So beloved, because you're qualified, take a deep breath this morning and rest. Secondly, because you and I are delivered, obey. You and I, from the scriptures, learn that Satan now has no power over the rescued believer's life. So you no longer have to sin when tempted. The war is over. Now, we know the war won't fully be over because the presence of sin isn't dismissed yet until we're in the presence of the Lord. But as we look at Memorial Day this weekend, I was fascinated by the story. It's a true story. In World War II, a Japanese soldier actually ended up on a small island in the Philippines. And he was cut off from all communications. But his last orders were to secure and protect the island. And even though the Allied forces had won, actually years ago, in Germany and Italy and Japan had surrendered, this soldier marooned on this island in the Philippines didn't know the news. He hadn't got the memo. And thus he refused to believe that the war was over. For almost 30 years, all the way up into the 1970s, this man kept defending his island and refused to surrender. Now, some Christians live their lives this way. They're still stuck in the old battles of the flesh. They're still living as though they're prisoners of war, still living like they're dead in their sins rather than walking in freedom and obedience. But believer, because you have been delivered from darkness, walk in obedience, walk in the light. You've been redeemed. But finally, number three, because you are forgiven, give thanks. Paul could look at the work of God in our salvation. He could just simply give thanks. And our response should be the same. We just sang these words a moment ago. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. You see, because of all we've been given and forgiven, May we have hearts and minds and mouths filled with gratitude. We know in Luke 17, Jesus healed 10 different lepers, but only one of them came to express gratitude. May we be that one leper. May we not suffer from spiritual amnesia, forget who we are, but remember our part in the story. We know that this story is not about us, but it does include us. And as we close and we think about stories, You and I have all maybe heard of the English folk story of the damsel in distress. She's typically a woman of great wealth and worth, a woman of nobility, captured by a dragon, locked in some fortress. Usually it's a castle. And we're familiar with how the story goes. The the king commissions some worthy knights in shining armor to go and rescue. And whoever rescues her gets her hand in marriage. It's a rescue story. And when I think about the gospel, I think some of us mistake ourselves in the story. And we go, well, well, that's me. I'm the brave knight in shining armor. I need to take down the castle and beat the devil. Hopefully, you don't see yourself as the hideous dragon in the story, hopefully. 
But no, as I think about the gospel, I realize, no, you and I, we're the girl. You see, the scripture uses language to describe God's people, the church, as the bride of Christ. How does the scripture describe the devil? Revelation 12, 9 calls him a dragon. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. You and I aren't the dragon. You and I are the girl. Who's the knight then? The knight who came to slay the dragon and save the girl is Jesus Christ. The one who is preeminent over all creation. He entered creation. And he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. To triumph over the dragon, our knight had to lay down his own life. But he's not the knight in shining armor. No, he's the one in beaten armor, bloodied armor, and proven armor. The one who is crushed for our iniquity, who died to set us free. Jesus slayed the dragon. He saved the girl. That's who we are. That's our story. You and I are qualified, delivered, and redeemed. Thanks be to God. We'll close with these familiar words. You've sung them often, I'm sure, from Fanny Crosby. And may these carry us into this week. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, his child, and forever I am. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're grateful this morning for the work that you have accomplished, Father. As Paul would go on to write to the church in Ephesus, praise be to the Father. All the work that you have done, you've given us all things. The spiritual blessings that we have are secured for us in Christ. And we thank you not only for the Father, for the Son, but for the work of your Holy Spirit who has sealed us for the day of redemption, who reminds us of all the things that Christ taught us. Lord, there are many today, maybe even in this gathering, who have tried to find their own qualifications through their good works, and they're, they're frustrated and they're tired. There may be some today, Lord, who are still defeated by the power of sin. They haven't yet understood the deliverance spiritually that is theirs in Christ. There are even some today that may not fully trust that they're forgiven, and they battle with the assurance of their salvation. Would you grant them that assurance this morning? Not because they qualify or they're good enough, but because Christ is Lord and his grace is sufficient for me. Lord, we love you and we are grateful to have our lives express gratitude, giving thanks to the Father for these three wonderful truths. May we grow in them, not move on from them, but grow deeper into them. For Christ's sake and for his glory, we pray. Amen.